0: Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined, as usual, by my partner in crime, the one and only, the amazing, the dear friend, the best of the best, the cream of the crop, Dan Feinberg. What's shaking, Dan?
1: Wildly overrated, as always, Leslie.
0: Ah, too humble, my friend.
1: (sighs) Well, while I would love to have some quality banter with you, there is simply
0: too much news this week. Let's get to headlines leading off the astros have lost the world series and yes i am giddy about that
1: i just Good on them for making it so that I had a rooting interest in this World Series to root against them. Otherwise, I was really not going to care at all. And thus, I was able to be happy by this week's results.
0: Yes. Congratulations to the Nationals. If we're going to lose to a team in the first round of the playoffs, at least that team can go ahead and win the World Series. It was a good one. I swore not to watch it, but it wound up being really, really great. And
1: a fine moment for French-speaking Canada. So that's all that matters.
0: There you go. Well, in other headlines this week, Succession exec producer Adam McKay has set up a Jeffrey Epstein limited series at HBO. It's part of a rich overall deal that he has signed with the cable network. He'll continue to develop new projects for HBO, as well as HBO Max.
1: Favorite TV's top five podcast guest, David E. Kelly, is returning to streaming and has set an hour-long dramedy, Big Shot, starring John Stamos at Disney+. Plus. You should definitely go back and listen to our podcast interview with David E. Kelly. It was spectacular.
0: In Renewals, Netflix Katie Sackhoff drama, Another Life, Epic's Pennyworth and Shutter's Creep Show have all been renewed for second seasons at their respective outlets.
1: ABC has handed out additional episode orders to rookies Stumptown and Mixedish Mixtish 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 and Sophomore Drama The Rookie. As a reminder, Breakout Emergence, one of the only shows of the new fall season that I'm still sticking with, is designed as a short order series. And over at the CW, Batwoman and Nancy Drew both scored back nine orders.
0: And speaking of the CW, this little known producer named Greg Berlanti is prepping a second Arrowverse spinoff for the CW next season. This one is called Superman and Lois, and it stars Tyler Hoechlin and Bitsy Tulloch reprising their roles from the Arrowverse.
1: Way to go, CW. Put your strength behind unknown creative voices and unknown properties
0: yes well with all that out of the way let's dive into this week's five topics
1: number one
0: leading off this week it's been a busy one surrounding the world of game of thrones this week hbo sent shockwaves throughout the industry when it passed on its naomi watts led game of thrones prequel from jane goldman Hours after that news broke, HBO programming president Casey Bloys announced a straight-to-series 10-episode order for House of the Dragon, a prequel focused on the origins of House Targaryen from showrunners Ryan Condal and Miguel Sapochnik, the latter of whom won an Emmy for helming the Battle of the Bastards episode. Meanwhile... Game of Thrones showrunners David Benioff and Dan Weiss delivered their own stunner when they bailed on a planned trilogy of Star Wars feature films, noting it was too much to juggle alongside their massive $250 million Netflix film and TV deal. Dan, there's a lot to break down here.
1: There are many, many pieces to break down. It was a roller coaster of a week for your basic Game of Thrones fans, especially Star Wars fans and Star Wars fans also, though Star Wars fans, I think, have been accustomed to this. And I guess Game of Thrones fans have been on a multi-year roller coaster as is, especially given that we also didn't. It's not really news, but the week kind of began or the weekend began with a I don't want to say unfortunate, but with a quote unquote newsy panel from Austin featuring Benioff and Weiss
0: in a rare public appearance.
1: And which is why I guess it, to my mind, got blown fairly wildly out of proportion I you know they they definitely were very candid about being I don't know about having been unprepared for television and unqualified for television when they started on the show and I think this is absolutely true but I think they've also been candid about this many many different times and it was the kind of thing that was charming for them to talk about when the show was being well regarded and everyone was loving it and it was sort of ha 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 disingenuous, we weren't prepared for this, but now we're the at the helm of the best show on television that everybody loves. Suddenly it becomes a, Oh, see, what do we tell you kind of story when they say the exact same things in the aftermath of people having not so much liked the last season of Game of Thrones.
0: not so much liked them personally for everything that they they did once they got beyond the source material. I mean, I haven't seen two showrunners this picked apart this quickly to go from heroes of a franchise, of a beloved franchise and a multi-billion dollar one at that to the GOATs almost overnight.
1: I... Don't know that it's that uncommon, honestly. I think it's, in fact, fairly similar to what happened mostly to Damon Lindelof in the homestretch on Lost, is that the Damon Lindelof, Carlton Cuse, J.J. Abrams, Trio, Trilogy, Trinity, what have you, was completely beloved in the first couple seasons of Lost. Everyone thought they were brilliant and geniuses, and then suddenly they weren't anymore because we didn't love how things went with that show. And then suddenly Leftovers came and Lindelof was elevated. For whatever reason, Carlton Cuse never really had to pay the same price that Damon Lindelof did. Basically, Damon Lindelof was assigned the role of master of mythology, and Carlton Cuse was assigned the role of guy who does voiceover narration and goes and does as many shows as he wants to do. And that's cool. And everyone likes him and he's friendly. And I don't know that those were necessarily. And still on Twitter. And still on Twitter. So different roles. And Weiss and Benioff were the guys who made the unmakeable books for all of those years. And now they're back to being the guys who were too amateurish to steer home the series while all the while you have George R. R. Martin sitting on his Schrodinger's cat of a sixth and seventh book, which, because we don't know what it is, we can assume that it's perfect and he gets everything right and he succeeds at everything that Weiss and Benioff didn't succeed at. And they're stuck being the amateurs who ruined his vision. When the books actually come out, I'm at least somewhat confident that we'll discover that Martin also has difficulties landing hitting the landing of a difficult to land franchise. But for now, it's quiet. And while he's the co-creator of the upcoming prequel series, House of the
0: Dragon, yeah,
1: House of the Dragon, yes, Uh, he made clear in a blog post earlier in the week that his first priority is going to be finishing at least the next book,
0: which we've heard him say for how (laughs) many years now? I don't know. I mean, look, you know, the interesting thing to me is that Naomi Watts pilot was written and directed by two different women and obviously starred a woman. House of the Dragon is written and directed by men. It just to me, it continues the the franchise's problem with women. And, you know, we go back to the Emmys and this is obviously not the fault of HBO or any of the creators, but no woman has ever won an Emmy for that show. And, you know, to me, this is a, a big problem.
1: It's both a genuine problem and an optics problem. So the genuine problem is a genuine problem: the number of women who directed episodes of Game of Thrones being one, and not in the home stretch at all, and the number of women who wrote a single word associated with the franchise being virtually none.
0: I think it was like two in out of seventy three episodes. Yeah,
1: it just that. So that that's not optics. That is genuinely bad.
0: Yeah, that, and, and we should note, you know, as in George's blog post this week, he he mentioned that the, there is no writers' room assembled for this yet. So they have an opportunity to at least fill that room with women and to make it inclusive and to make both of those things a big priority for this franchise.
1: But again, having Jane Goldman write the script for the prequel pilot that didn't go forward and S.J. Clarkson directed, those again were not optics. Now, on the other hand, what is optics is having these two pieces of news come out on the same day. That is completely optics to say we're not taking the prequel that has all of the women associated with it, but we're totally taking the one with a direct-to-series order, no even need to make a pilot, and then coming on the heels of the Benioff and Weiss panel, where they talked about being handed the keys to the kingdom without having any qualifications.
0: And then bailing on Star Wars literally, what, 24 hours after that panel— or maybe two days after. I don't know. I can't remember the timing of it all. But it's been a roller coaster week to be sure. Um, Benny F. Weiss, from everything that I've reported alongside my film counterpart, the amazing Boris Kitt, who you should definitely follow on social if you're a fan of all things fanboy stuff. Boris and I basically reported out a story on what happened with Benny F. Weiss and Star Wars. And in terms of the TV components of that, Benny F. Weiss had always planned to do both Star Wars and Netflix projects concurrently. That to me is a major, major problem. When you're looking at guys who admittedly say, we were overwhelmed by this show, we were unprepared to do this show. And now they're taking on what was supposed to be a trilogy of easily the world's biggest franchise, Star Wars. They're going to juggle that as well as multiple film and TV projects for Netflix all at the same time. It's like basic elementary school math. These things just do not Add up, and that's I think what cracked. Obviously, Disney and Netflix have their own feud that's been going on. Disney networks no longer air Netflix ads. They're, you know, obviously we've talked at length about the Marvel stuff that imploded between those two companies. All the Disney fare is on its way off of Netflix when those respective deals run out. There's no more Marvel streaming on Netflix at this point because it's all going to Disney Plus. I mean, look, this is a big problem, you know, and the fact that. This deal was done when they signed with Netflix in August, they were attached to write a treatment. The goal was that at the time I was told to write at least one Star Wars movie, their original deal from last year was for a trilogy. This was a mess. So everything that we've that Boris and I uncovered is this exit was at least happening since the late summer. And I'm told through sources that Netflix found out that they bailed on Star Wars mere days before the news went public. So... Make of that what you will, but there's a lot on their plate, and it's all at Netflix now, and well, how much they'll be able to juggle all at once is still to be determined. But the bigger issue for me, and we've talked about this at length, $250 million to give two guys who have effectively only done 73 episodes of granted award-winning television is a crazy amount of money. Those nine-figure deals are always reserved for the prolific producers. Ryan Murphy is a great example. They paid him $300 million for the same five-year deal. And he's already working on, I think, 10 projects, some 18 months or 20 months after he signed the deal. I'm, I'm just repeating myself at this point. but <laughs> it, it, It's still a head scratcher, and it has been since August.
1: No, the, the idea of expecting people to juggle things when there's no precedent for them having juggled anything. They only juggled one ball for all these years. The one time they attempted to do something else or to say they were doing something else, it was, of course, HBO's Confederate, which was, once again, a disaster of optics more than anything else, because HBO put it forward as the Benioff and Weiss show, as opposed to putting it forward as the show that Benioff and Weiss are steering for Malcolm Spellman and uh, Nichelle Tramble Spellman, which they did not do this is something where maybe the show might have been something. I I understand why we feel like probably what it was going to be we didn't necessarily want to see, but we'll never know. And people will always talk about the disaster of that show as if anything had ever been written, you know? Nothing was, a, was written. Exactly. It was a pitch. It was nothing else. There, there might have been a page or two of outlining, and instead... Instead, it became this horrible debacle largely because HBO dropped the ball in how they announced it. And they
0: admitted to announcing that poorly. And, and, you know, for me, the biggest question that I have as we look ahead to what F. and Weiss are going to do for Netflix is how much of the stuff are they going to write versus how much will they shepherd as exec producers, as non-writing exec producers? So, yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff to stay tuned for, but. What a mess of this franchise. And you know, as I as I pose on Twitter, my big question, Dan, and we'll let's move on to the next topic after this, but how much do you think all of this, the pilot pass, Benny F and Weiss and Star Wars, how much do you think that this has damaged the brand that is Game of Thrones? And it's an Emmy winning brand.
1: An Emmy winning brand, just the drama series Emmy last month or two months ago, however long it is, it just happened. It just won a drama series Emmy. Another drama
0: series. speaking,
1: Speaking of brands and brands that could be damaged or what's next for brands, let's talk a little bit about HBO or rather HBO Max.
0: Yes. Up second, HBO Max has now formally been unveiled to investors and to the press.
1: Number two.
0: First, it was Apple, then Disney Plus, now HBO Max. Now they've revealed what to expect when it launches officially in May 2020. A date hasn't been determined, but a price has. $15 a month, Dan. That
1: seems like, on one hand a high price when you compare it to Disney Plus. On the other hand, it could seem like a reasonable price when you start layering in all of the various things that they announced would be there. So among the things they announced, let's you could start, start with movies where there will be lots of Warner Brothers franchises, and they also but announced... But no Harry Potter. But no Harry Potter. But they also announced that the Criterion Collection, to some degree, was going to be a part of the package. That is a huge deal, that there would be TCM curated classic movies as part of the package. That That's a huge deal. Uh, We already have many, 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 many times discussed the amount of library content they've picked up, ranging from, of course, a little show called Friends, a little show called Big Bang Theory, a little show called West Wing, blah, blah, blah. A lot of content, a lot of original content. So you're getting a lot. But then the part where it got really confusing and where I still genuinely do not understand what the plan is, is some people are going to get HBO Max for free or for the amount that they're already spending. It's possible it could be most people who have HBO to some degree currently, but I do not understand. And maybe you could clarify for some of the kids. And if you can't, that just goes to show how poorly thus far they are messaging this.
0: Yeah, I can't really. (laughs) But what we do know is, is if you're paying for HBO, as you said, so if you have specific cable providers... And are paying through HBO through that you will get Max for free.
1: I don't think that's true, though. I think it's, I believe I, it's true. I think if you get it as part of your AT and T
0: package, if it's AT and T and Directv, because those are under the same umbrella, yes. But if you're a Charter, which is a different corporation, yeah, this is if it's this just is your bundled,
1: point. If it's just bundled into your regular cable package and it's not a Directv or AT and T package, currently, I don't believe that you get. No you will be getting it. Then again, no. and I don't know that we've even mentioned it, <laughs> May, May 2020 is when this is coming out. So even if we're wrong about this, and I want to emphasize it's entirely possible we're wrong. Part of the reason why it's we're unclear. wrong this is, is because they are doing such a bad job of telling people what this is going to be, which is not unacceptable, given that it's, again, a solid six to seven months before any of this exists in any level. I get confused on what month it is. But still, Basically, I think we are right at the point at which audiences are going to start freaking out about what they're paying extra for versus what they're already paying for. And this, to me, feels like a genuine breaking point because it is something that people are already paying for. And if in most cases been paying for for years or they think they have, it's something really different, but they're not messaging yet what the difference is. and people are going to be perplexed.
0: Yeah, I mean, and one of their execs said this during the presentation, too, when he was asked by an by an investor or an analyst, if you're paying $15 a month for HBO Max, but you're already paying $15 a month for HBO Now, you're not going to keep that subscription. You're going to go with Max because there's so much more. It's a value add. So basically, they're trying to siphon those people who are paying for one part of that service for exclusive HBO content into an HBO Max subscriber. And if you're like me and you have an AT&T based cable subscription, which we haven't cut the cord yet, I'm a TV reporter, I think it's still important to have that, and you're continuing to pay for it, you're going to get Max for free. That's great. Fine. I'm already signed up. Fabulous. My life is a little bit easier. Thanks. But if you're a cable subscriber who hasn't cut the cord and you don't have an AT&T or a DirecTV subscription, you're going to have to pay for this anyway. So as I see it right now, if I understand what they're trying to do correctly, They're going to basically say, if you want HBO, you don't need to pay for it through your cable package. You can pay for it independently and get all this other content for free. So it's a value add, basically.
1: Which does not in any way actually feel more convenient to me. Also,
0: it's an it's an it becomes an add on, but a digital add on. Also, I think
1: it becomes increasingly clear that HBO as a concept and as a sort of above everything else concept is kind of vanishing. And I think that was what the HBO people said for many months when this streaming platform was still just the untitled Warner Brothers streaming platform, is that they always just assumed HBO was going to be a standalone thing. And it doesn't really feel to me as if that's the case anymore. Like if you look at how HBO defined itself within the course of this presentation that they did, it was as kind of a brand within HBO Max as a a subsidiary of HBO Max. Basically, as HBO as being to HBO Max and Warner Brothers, what maybe FX is for Disney. It's the here's the adult stuff. Here's the prestige stuff. It's coming from this one stream. And that's not what HBO was presenting itself as being Previously, it was always this thing that was above and beyond, and I, I definitely feel as if if they don't want HBO to lose its HBO luster, and if that matters, maybe in 2019 it doesn't, they need to do something to, to backtrack some of this, because I, I think this is damaging to HBO as a standalone brand. If they don't care, if they just want HBO to be a tab within HBO Max, that's totally cool, because the money's all coming and going the same place, it's not, you know, no one's losing here, but... I feel like there's something being lost that they didn't think they wanted to lose.
0: Yeah. And, you know, let's talk a little bit about the programming. And one thing, you know, Greenblatt said is they stressed that everything that's going to be on this service will be quality. And they stressed a lot of curation and human curation, which has kind of become like the, you know, the punchline among all these presentations is, you know, that we have content, you'll be able to find it quick and easy. We're not going to rely solely on a algorithm like Netflix. Fine. Great. Whatever. But in terms of what they're looking for, they're basically targeting three different demos, which is super interesting to me anyway, because I'm a programming person, but looking at kids and family stuff. So hence the Sesame Street deal makes a ton of sense. And then the second piece is millennials and Gen Z. And then the third targeted demo is adults, but specifically women, which is very interesting to me. So when you when you look at a lot of these HBO shows, and yes, there are shows like Sex in the City, which target women, but Game of Thrones, The Sopranos, The Wire, those are very male skewing shows, quality shows, but still male oriented. So it makes sense that that they're trying to at least offset a little of that with their originals. Meanwhile, we can talk about some of the big programming announcements they had this week, and we'll just run through because there were eight eight different embargoes um so first of all greg berlanti what a week man so he's doing superman and lois lane for cw and now he's doing a dc comics inspired anthology for hbo max and a new take on green lantern as a live action series that he said will be unlike anything he's done before so that's interesting you know, if you're a TV Top 5 listener, you know we are very confused about the futures of TNT and TBS. Add another tick mark in the confusion box there because TNT's Raised by Wolves, which is a Ridley Scott drama starring Travis Fimmel, is moving to HBO Max. So paging TNT and TBS execs, come join us. We still have a lot of questions for you. Elsewhere on the comedy side, HBO Max picked up new shows from the likes of Issa Rae, Elizabeth Banks and Mindy Kaling. Oh and as we've mentioned and we knew this would be coming and here it is new Looney Tunes and Hanna-Barbera content as they lean into that corporate synergy and and of course those library titles those very very deep library titles will be part of the service as they really bulk up for the kids space and that's
1: on top of the previously announced uh, Studio Ghibli acquisition that exactly. we discussed last week which I'm much more excited about than the Looney Tunes or Hanna-Barbera which is not to say that I'm not
0: I mean I, gr- by this. I grew up on those so that's that's cool to me on the library side they had a Big. They added yet another big spend on this one, South Park, making the move from Hulu to HBO Max in what sources say is a deal that could be worth as much as $600 million. HBO Max will have this exclusively in June 2020. So Farewell, South Park, which was one of Hulu's most streamed acquired shows. HBO Max getting a big gun there. And to me, you know, the other piece of this too, Rick and Morty, one of my favorites, um, will stream concurrently on both HBO Max and Hulu, where it remains one of Hulu's, again, most watched acquired series. We've talked about this before, but animation on streaming is monster, all monster hits. It's why you're seeing a lot of these companies invest so heavily in that genre. But of all these announcements to me, the big winner throughout all of the HBO Max announcements is Viacom because 600 million bucks for South Park. (sighs)
1: Yeah. Busy week. I'm exhausted, Leslie.
0: Yeah. Well, let's move on, Dan. I sense a little sadness in your voice, and this might be why. Up third, it's a sad day. AMC has canceled Lodge 49 after two seasons.
1: Number three. It's a sad day for a few people.
0: Yeah, very, very (laughs) few people. The Critical Darling averaged less than 500,000 viewers, and that's with three days of delayed viewing with three days of delayed viewing, No one was watching this show live.
1: A very, very few people were watching the show live Period. and it's, it's the unfortunate reality where I, you know, I feel like probably critics, myself included have to take some of the blame because a large portion of the way that we've sold the show is you can't describe the show. It's undescribable. You just have to watch it. And apparently Audiences who pay attention to TV critics are not necessarily willing to go out on that limb with no particular understanding of what the show is. And that is too bad. And I don't know that we necessarily were wrong for being unable to describe the show. It's a hard show to describe. But the adjectives that one could use to describe the show, it's a goofy, funny show. It's a spiritually rich, big-hearted show. It's a community show. It's a... Show with truly one of the great ensemble casts on TV and people will, wherever they discover it, whether it's Hulu or who knows where down the road, they will discover this show eventually. And it will be one of those shows like now, 10 years on, there's a whole group of people who are now irate that they never got more than one season of amc's rubicon well where were you when rubicon was actually airing folks come on we did tell you the show was darn good but that's it's just not necessarily the way that everyone watches tv anymore and so this one is just sad for me because you just you just won't get A cast like this, you know, led by Wyatt Russell, Brent Jennings, Sonia Cassidy, David Pasquese, Eric Allen Kramer, Linda Edmond, executive producer Paul Giamatti had a phenomenal role this season. I would love to see him get nominated for an Emmy for his role this season. Just such an endearing show and really still such a difficult show to describe. Leslie, do you want to go into some of the logistics of why, while everyone is still holding out the hope that someone might pick this up, it's a difficult sell to make and not just the numbers that you gave earlier?
0: Yeah, this is why I get hate emails. Um, (laughs) This is a show that is owned by AMC Studios. And we talk a lot on this podcast about how much ownership matters. And it's not just the financial bottom line that makes these, you know, some of these renewals a little bit easier for broadcast networks specifically and for cablers and streamers. But for this one, you know, AMC owns the show. They have very I think they've maybe done one other show that they have sold to an outside supplier and I think it was a CBS show from a long time ago. I can't even remember if it made it on the air or not. But the odds of it finding a new home, despite the creators who are remain steadfast and they're tweeting a lot about trying to find a new home for it, but the odds of that happening are very slim just because of the ownership factor. AMC Studios is not theoretically set up to be an outside supplier, like an independent studio like Warner Brothers or Sony. You know, Look, Sony is the outlet that sold el camino to netflix before it aired on amc they own breaking bad they own that franchise they have every right to do that so an amc of course because they own the show they can sell it out elsewhere this would be a great new revenue stream for them in an era where linear viewership as we've talked endlessly about continues to decline as everyone's watching on streaming or vod or just any other platform we're catching it on netflix or whatever streaming service that it, that it has it in its second window so You know, the other piece of it, too, is AMC wouldn't cancel the show if it thought that it could put it on one of the other platforms. BBC America, Sundance Now, which is their streaming service. You know, it's an expensive show to make. Paul Giamatti is expensive. Wyatt Russell is an expensive actor. That's what happens when you bring in talented people and you buy shows from well-known producers and you want big name actors to star in them. It becomes an expensive proposition. So they own it. It's expensive to make. Wasn't going to work on one of their lesser watched platforms and they're not really equipped to sell to outside suppliers.
1: Yeah, I think you could make the argument that the reason why it got a second season was because it was owned Absolutely. by AMC.
0: And because it was embraced by critics.
1: So it got those things. But, you know, people are saying, oh, Hulu should pick it up. Well, you know, the, the honest answer is... AMC knows how many people watched the show on Hulu in its first season, and they know what kind of bump they did or really and truly didn't get in the second season as a result of that. And
0: AMC, you know, there's nothing that says if Hulu wants it, hypothetically, I have no information on this, by the way, this is just an example if Hulu wants it, AMC could completely wash their hands of the whole thing and say, you know what? You guys make this as a Hulu original. That's what happened with Designated Survivor. I use that show as a punching bag a lot because it had so many different showrunners, but it did have two studios. AMC Studios produced it with, with Entertainment One. And when it went to Netflix after ABC canceled it, ABC Studios completely backed off and it became a Netflix original with E1 as a co-producer. So maybe that happens here too. I don't know.
1: Anyway, Lodge 49, you were a good show. People would like you. I wish you were easier to describe.
0: Yeah, we're pouring one out. Well, for our next topic, it's time for another Showrunner Spotlight segment.
1: Number four.
0: Joining us this week is Carrie Aaron, the executive producer and showrunner of Apple's most important series, the Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon star The Morning Show. Carrie started her career working with Jason Kadams on Friday Night Lights and Parenthood before moving to team with Carlton Cuse for Annie's psycho prequel Bates Motel. As part of her deal for the morning show, Carrie signed Apple's first ever overall deal. Welcome, Carrie. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Welcome. Well, getting started, we're here at launch day for Apple TV Plus has finally arrived. It's years in the making. What's the mood among everyone with an Apple and Team Morning Show on launch day?
2: I mean, everyone's excited. It's it, it it has been years in the making and I have only been here for a year and a half of it. And, and it feels like years. So, so it is, it is a big, it's a big deal and a big event. And uh, we worked really hard to get here. And
1: we're ready. Well, what has the information stream been like between you and Apple? There was the long stretch, for example, after the announcement back in the spring where people were like, when's it going to premiere? How mm-hmm. much is it going to be? How many of the answers to those questions did you know? Or have you just been in the dark along with um, everyone else?
2: You know, I, I I think it's been being figured out as we go a bit, so it I don't I don't know if I knew before other people. I'm sure I didn't know at the same time that Tim Apple knew, but <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I, but I knew eventually, um, and ahead of I suppose the public. You know, it's a streaming
0: service, and it's gonna start. <laughs> I mean obviously this is such a huge play. I mean Apple is what a 1 trillion dollar company. It is huge. And it's huge. this is their calling card. Yeah. What kind of pressure did you feel once <laughs> you signed on? And we can get we'll get into that shortly, but once you did sign on, yeah. what how much pressure did you feel for, to really get this right considering what this represented for a company the size of Apple?
2: I mean there's a, there's a couple different layers to that answer. One is I felt pressure before I accepted it. It was honestly, it was one of those things that such' so much pressure coming at, you're like, "Do I want to do this? Because you know what you're getting into. Then once you agree to do it and and it becomes your responsibility, then you have to kind of shut out the pressure. You have to you can't you can't go into work every day going, "I have to get this right. You have to just go in and and follow your instincts and think about what the feeling is of the show you're trying to create. And just push toward that target, because honestly, if you let in, oh, I have to do this. For, <laughs> I have to get this right for Apple, the a trillion dollar company, or they won't launch, <laughs> or something. You know, I mean, that's you can't. That's too much every day. It's hard. It's hard enough to just make up a story. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's like a whole extra layer of uh, insane stress. But I mean, on some level, we all felt it, and we all felt it for 15 months.
1: Though on some level, obviously, say, the people who were doing the first Netflix shows, they knew that if it failed, maybe that would be the end of Netflix as an entity. Mm-hmm. You have to at least have some confidence that Apple is probably, as an entity, going to survive whatever I,
2: happens I with you guys. I am confident Apple <laughs> is in good shape. Yes.
0: Yes. So let's go back to when you signed on. Obviously, yes. you know, Jay Carson is credited as the creator. Yes. There was an ar- credit arbitration. Yes, there you got was. the developed by credit yeah. on this. but as they were looking for a showrunner to come in and to take this show over mm-hmm. what was their pitch to you what was the sell can you walk us through that process
2: you know it was it was april 2018 so i don't have the i don't have a beat by beat in my memory but what i remember is it was i i had just started taking meetings because i was looking to go into more of a streaming or cable entity as opposed to broadcast where I'd been for, I'd had a home for like
0: 11 years. Right. Universal yes. where you did Friday Night Lights yeah. and Parenthood and, and Bates, Bates Motel. Motel.
2: Yeah. And I, and I, you know, I loved them and I was happy there, but I wanted to have a little more freedom in what I was writing about. So I was, I was taking a lot of meetings and I met with Michelle Lee who I had worked with at True Jack, you know, with Jason Kadams. And, um, she is obviously has a, intimate understanding of my sensibility of the work I do. And I think it was just sort of a collision of they were looking at that moment and I was available at that moment and it happened. They basically just said they were looking for someone to write this show that was about, you know, based on this book, Brian Stalter's book, uh, which I read and loved and that Reese and Jen were attached Getting to write for like brilliantly talented people is that's hard to walk away from ever. I mean, that probably is one of the greatest joys of this job is getting to work with actors and, and write for people who can do this amazing stuff. So that was a huge pull on me. But I think they were just looking for like, what's your take? What would you do with it? What, it, what would this show be to you? You know, and I approached it from. The perspective of because this is very much off the top of my head, just being a woman in a high-powered job in in uh, in an entertainment business environment and what that's like, what it's like to be complicated, to have like emotional days, have angry you know a lot of times I think just just female characters don't get drawn as as complexly as you want them to be. And so I really wanted to, it, it seemed like a forum to just do all the stuff I've lived through for 30 years um, in terms of friendships with women at work, what that, you know, but complicated, the complicated, nuanced version, not the, I'm either your rival or I'm your best friend and I'm always good, you know, the all the gray area in between. Just talking about, um, you know, the whole gender issues, being a, being a female in what for, you know, most of my career was very much a male-driven industry. And um, just being able to look at all that. It was just such a great
1: stage for all of it. Well, when they brought you in, mm-hmm. did they tell you what the development process had been to that point on it? And All they said is they, had,
2: they were looking for someone. They didn't really take me through any... Detailed history of the project. I basically knew there was a script that existed that wasn't what they were, the direction really, or the feeling they wanted the show to be. And um,
1: that was really it. But for purposes of saving time, for example, they didn't say, we've gone down this road, we hit this road bump, go a different way.
2: No, Um, it wasn't like that. It was more really like, what do you want to do with this? What's the tone of it? What kind of stories do you want to tell? It really was like it had never been developed
1: before. And yet you had these two actresses who were also producers, who mm-hmm. are also about as big names as exist in this medium. Yeah, What sense did you have of what they wanted to do and how important basically their fiat was going to be in terms of what actually got made?
2: Well, I had meetings with both of them after my initial Apple meeting. And what I got from, I met with them separately, and what I got from both of those meetings was they wanted to do do something that felt real and really about real women in a real situation dealing with the problems that that we all face um, and also to have a it was definitely my instinct to want to have like a messiness to it and a character driven storytelling definitely have high stakes but really the story would come from character and they seemed I mean we all seemed on the same
0: page of what we wanted it to feel like tonally. From everything that we've been told, and look, we've been covering Apple since they announced Zach and Jamie, even before their big announcement yeah. that they were pushing hard into the, into scripted originals. But everything that I understand, Jay's first draft really didn't touch on me too, and that was one of the that has been one of the big calling cards of this show. Obviously, mm-hmm. Steve Carell is playing a yeah. character who has striking resemblances to what's happened with Matt Lauer. Mm-hmm. But when did you when did that become so central to what became the morning well, show?
2: It's interesting because I don't I when I was younger, I watched morning news shows, you know, with my mom when I was growing up in the house or when I was in high school, when I was a young adult. Once I was working a lot and I had little kids, I really didn't I really wasn't as tuned into that. So in my head. Morning show, like when someone says morning show, right before I took this job and did a bunch of research and read Brian's book, I just thought Charlie Rose, Matt Lauer, (laughs) sadly, sadly, I mean, I know, and I didn't mean to laugh, but it's, but it was like, really, that was, to me, that was what it was about right now. So someone was saying, do a show about morning news. I'm like, well, don't we have to talk about that? Because that seemed the most huge element of it when I walked in the door. And it's, it's a massive subject, massive. And looking at it from a perspective, you know, over an industry, this, this news industry, this fictional news industry, this entertainment industry, and seeing all the fallout and all the politics and all the personal pain and yeah, just all those different colors of it uh, was, was seemed like a worthwhile venture.
1: Well, I know that you've done interviews already where you talked about how the Steve Carell character is not Matt Lauer. Yeah. But of course, absolutely everybody watching this is going to think that the Steve Carell character is Matt Lauer. What does that do for you in terms of what you want to either steer into or avoid? That it that it's such an unavoidable comparison. Um,
2: you know, I don't know. I feel, I guess uh, perhaps I'm naive. I don't. It's not Matt Lauer. So. <laughs> It isn't in any way wasn't designed to be about him or, you know, it's not like I didn't study him. It it was about a guy who works in morning news who gets fired for sexual misconduct. That did happen to Matt Lauer. It also happened to Charlie Rose. It also happened to someone on Fox. It isn't exclusively Matt Lauer. So I, I guess it's. It's a little confusing to me why, it always, why, why that is the big question in interviews, although I do. I also understand it. I mean, I get it.
1: But you have things like the button under his desk that closes the door. Well, that's a, that's I, a very, very big signpost.
2: Um, I guess. I mean, I've, I've worked with a lot of executives that had buttons that close their doors. It was a normal thing. It, was, it doesn't lock the door. It just closes the door.
0: But as you guys set out to tell this larger story, what Mm -hmm. kind of feedback did Reese and Jen have specifically about the kind of story that they wanted to tell within this larger conversation?
2: I mean, I, I think that they were always really on board with the tone of the story I was telling. And I can't think of an incident where they said, I think it's to this or it's to that, or you should do this or you should do that. I think the conversations we had... Or more about like the fictional world and the pieces of that, what the characters were going to be like, adjusting characters to be more what they were wanting to play right now. It, it was it was more of that kind of a collaboration as opposed to um, really talking through like that the the Me Too aspect of it a lot. I think that I had a take on it pretty early on that was working, and uh, everyone on the project.
1: Felt really good about it. Well, it feels notable that to some degree you guys use the all about Eve archetype almost as a fake out that it sets up as this, oh, it's going to be these women in power bickering and then you steer away from that. Was that something that you clearly wanted not to be doing?
2: I didn't want it to be about a person, a woman who deceives another woman to get ahead. I had no interest in telling that
0: story. There was a, a lovely story about you and your career in the LA Times recently, very and nice, yes. one of the images kind of stuck out to me where it's a stack of scripts on your desk of all of the different drafts of what became the pilot for Morning Show.
2: Yeah, you know what's sad about that? That wasn't even the whole stack. <laughs> <laughs> That's there, like a it's like a foot tall. Yes, it's taller than a foot, and with and there's another half a stack next to it that didn't get in the picture. It it's, was like 30 drafts. That seems excessive. To do quickly. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, on this show, and this is unique to the show, I've never experienced this before,
0: there is a lot of partners. Yeah. So, so yeah, you, yes, Media Res is a brand new studio exactly. launching with this. And
2: Michael's, you know, is very hands-on, Michael Ellenberg, and he is a good... Former, crea- you know, Former HBO drama head. Yeah. Yes. And great creative mind, great person to bounce story off of, very, you know, he's interactive and... So I was, in a, you know, obviously this was his baby from the beginning. So I had notes from him, from uh, Jen has two producers, Reese has a producer. They're all great people. It was just a lot of people. Mimi Leder,
0: um Plus Apple. Plus Apple.
2: <laughs> <laughs> plus Danny Gorin, who is also wonderful and is at Media Res, but it was a lot of people. So the... Tonnage of, of drafts is a little bit deceiving because it isn't like every one of those was like a major page one. It was a lot of it was a lot of tinkering and finding and, little, you know, but it wasn't like each one was like, now start over. <laughs> you know, uh, I would have died. That was a lot of drafts.
0: Yeah. yeah. I mean, that,
2: it, was, it, was, it, was, it was like collaborative
0: uh, adjustment. With so many different, pe- you know, different hands yes. in the cookie jar yeah. here. What were some of the, the notes? I'm curious, as Apple's first show, what were some of their notes? We've heard so much about that God. all the programming they want is aspirational remember. in tone. But I'm curious, what were their notes and how, what makes a show about the Me Too movement aspirational?
2: they they i mean this again goes back to michelle lee understanding my sensibility and i have definitely a dark comedy to me i have a dark uh, you know emotionality to me but i also have a lot of there i have a what i would say is a a sort of hopeful heart i think i don't think i write anything that is just bleak and it was one of the things, actually, when they first suggested Bates Motel to me. I was like, I'm kind of interested in this, but I can't do it if what you want is bleak, bleak, bleak. Because I just don't live in that universe. I live in a universe where people are fucked up and flawed and messy and sometimes really stupid, but that they're trying. So I feel like there, there was a lot of people in the fictional world of the news world we were talking about in the entertainment world in the show, that there were a lot of people who are trying to work their way through this thing and didn't understand it. And we're trying to understand it. We're trying to control it. We're trying to erase it. We're, We're trying to pretend like it didn't happen. And there's so many, that to me was just such a great palette to work with. But I think to me, what is, what is always aspirational is that someone somewhere is looking for something to make sense, to be meaningful to fix it that it isn't just people being shitty to each other i guess and and apple i mean they loved the first draft they they were really excited and happy
0: what were some of the things that they kind of came back to you and said more more iphone meant you know screen grabs please they never
2: said any of that <laughs> it's it, I, I mean know, there's a
0: few in the pilot
2: <laughs> i know but how do you tell a story about producers without tell without without an iphone it's like it's I don't know how to tell a story anymore about a contemporary human without a phone. I mean, it really is. It's like, it's like a, it is like an emotional extension of oneself at this point. So that, that actually, none of that came from them. That was all me. They were pretty cool. They didn't ever say like product placement or this is too dark. Or I think once maybe they, they pushed back on a script only because I had like fifty seven fucks in it. And they <laughs> they asked if I could maybe make it like forty five. <laughs> and, and um, you know, I mean,
0: which is not the world's most unreasonable request. <laughs> it's fair. It's fair. Yeah. Following that up, you know, look, Steve Carell's character obviously fired for sexual harassment or yeah. sexual misconduct. Yeah. And the choice to follow that character mm-hmm. throughout a season, we've heard obviously mm-hmm. he's got a one year deal but can you talk a little bit about the choice to follow that char- to follow that character's path and yeah. to even make that character sympathetic and someone that you're almost rooting for? Because it is, I mean, at the end of the day, it's Steve Carell, and who doesn't love Steve Carell?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm fascinated by the concept of a person who had so much power and was so protected within the bubble of that power for so many years that they literally— And I see this all the time in different ways. You know, it's like it's Hollywood protects what makes it money, you know. So he was very protected, this character, to the point where he doesn't even consciously understand that he can do something wrong. (laughs) He thinks that he's so he's so beloved. He's so right. He's so successful. He's so used to being petted and told he's right and that he's, you know, it's yes, yes, yes all the time. So and he wakes up one day and that bubble breaks. And what does that look like? That is fascinating to me. And I I was interested in exploring it.
1: You also have Billy Crudup as the sort of representative Uber network boss. And Mm -hmm. over the years, you've obviously interacted with dozens of Billy Crudups. Mm -hmm. As you were constructing this guy, how did you approach whether he was going to be a nightmare or a dream executive or a combination of both? Obviously,
2: It's interesting because I think. That when you create a character, you start you start in one place, which is what you need them to be in that story of that script. And then they grow out from there. And you don't know. Like I didn't know when I wrote the first one where I was gonna go with him. I didn't know if he was gonna become the most horrible person in the world or a human being that is kind of buried inside his own ego. I didn't know. So I mean that's one of the joys really of writing is you get to find that stuff out as you go. I did know that I wanted him to be kind of outrageously precocious, very confident, and and really like always, I think Billy described it as always, he's always playing, he's always in a chess game with everyone that, you know, the other people aren't always aware of that. And Billy is just so funny in this part and so brilliant.
1: But in your mind, can you look at that character and can you actually see details that you maybe took from people you've oh, worked with over the years? Okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The so good details or the bad details? So, honestly,
0: Tell us everything. <laughs> every, every, <laughs>
2: everything I write is from real life. I do not have a huge imagination, I, I just pull from my life. <laughs> And I and I restructure it and reform it into stories.
1: <laughs> so we'll just sit here and guess, and we'll start throwing out names of executives you've worked with, and you can awesome. Not. That's
0: a fun game. <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> and you know, in the larger sense, you know, try obviously trying to avoid spoilers. This is the yeah. first three episodes are out, and then it shifts to a weekly rollout. Yeah. so people will get to the finale in a few yeah. weeks. But what's the larger takeaway that you hope? viewers have after the end of season one and obviously the show is picked up with a two season 20 episode order so mm-hmm. you're already working on yeah. season two
2: my main reason that I write is I want to connect with other people and I want to try to help people understand each other I want people to learn something I want people to take the higher road I want people it's usually all coming from that kind of a play I want people to feel something I can't really tell you the takeaway without spoiling it in any real sense. So I can't really answer that the way I think you want me to answer it.
0: But if the Me Too movement is is central to season one, would you say it's also central to season two? Or does it become more about, you know, the story of two women who were... I think um, it's about the earthquake that is Me
2: Too. And it's about the seismic shift in the industry and in society and in personal relationships. So it definitely, it permeates all of, all of it. It, It's the basis of it. It's the beginning of it. And it all plays out from that
1: point. Now I want to go back a little bit to the, the apple of it all, because you've worked on broadcast, obviously you've worked on cable when you're in something that's maybe a little bit less set in its ways, Did you feel like you were to some degree able to be making the template and the rule as you were going along? Or did it not really matter? They were still making the rules and you just had to adapt to something about a rule book. No, no, not at all. Do you mean like in terms of story construction? I mean, in terms of what it was that they were doing as a TV producing entity. I mean, a lot of people are going to be, what is Apple TV Plus? They're going to click on Uh Morning Show, and that's suddenly going to be what Apple TV Plus is to them. You
2: mean as a type of brand? As an entity. Tone, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: How did you want to do that in a way that maybe you couldn't on a network that does 50 of these at once? Well, you
2: can talk. I mean, I haven't worked on like a 22-episode network show ever i don't think like the shows that i came from were friday night lights parenthood bates motel they all had sort of odd templates you know none of them were had a had a procedure to them so they every episode you kind of had to build out of whole cloth and that's just what i'm used to in the way i write but the reason i wanted to do more streaming and cable is just honestly to be able to be able to swear more <laughs> hence my 57 fox um <laughs> that's going I mean, in our I, headline just I, so you I, know, yeah.
0: <laughs> an interview with the morning show Carrie 57, car- 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 57, 57 fucks, fox aaron yeah
2: but no i mean not just not just uh profanity but just and and an, an ability to go into darker subjects without having to always restrain yourself
0: you know you know, structurally, these episodes, you know, obviously the first three are dropping at once and then shifts to weekly. But when you were making this show, did you kind of make it with a binge model in mind or did you make it as you would norm- make anything else? Like, did that did the fact that this was a streaming show factor in and maybe the uncertainty? Bit, of I think how a little Apple's bit in did. the
2: sense that I want. I mean, I don't know that has so much to do with binge, but I definitely wanted it to have a, a, a little bit of a runaway train vibe to it to really keep you pulled in all the time and move and so i mean that could be said to be influenced by by binginess
1: but there weren't dictate uh, dictates along those lines oh, no. like you need cliffhangers you no, no, need... no no no
2: no <laughs> but i mean i have also been doing this a long time so i do kind of know what i need
1: <laughs> but there are still different rules for how netflix wants to do cliffhangers Is or... there?
2: what think... are they like, how many different ways can you do a cliffhanger? Because I don't know them.
1: I think you can do the cliffhanger model where you know people are going to have to wait a week for it to come back. Or yeah. where you know people are just going to press skip intro and go right into the first scene of the next episode. But does that
2: create a different type of cliffhanger? I would need. Like, e- if you're writing it.
1: You <laughs> I know? would need a writer to tell me that, probably. Yeah.
2: I don't <laughs> think it does. I mean, that's why I i don't
1: think it does. Is it a two-season show uh, in your no, mind? I think it's more. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, as you approach, you know, look, we've we written a number of stories about how Netflix is increasingly cutting back on the number of seasons that some of its originals I've heard go. that, yeah. Because Four is the new like six. They, yeah, yeah, right. As you approach this, knowing that there's more in mind, I mean, yeah. how long do you see this going? and? Have you thought about that in a larger sense?
2: You know, because I felt I, I sort of got shot out of a cannon on this. I think it's been there wasn't like a big there wasn't a year to like study the concept and what is this show and how long. So really, we're finding this out as we go. And I think part I think part of the second season is feeling out that question. You know, how many years are in it? What is, what is it? You know, and I think that you just keep you have an end in mind and you you have to figure out how much real estate you have to get there
0: yeah it's like with Bates Motel you exactly. obviously knew how the show ended yes.
2: it was just but we didn't how know how many going.
0: years right
2: and it's and uh, I think and again in the second season because usually you have a very like the first season you know it has to be this and then the
1: second season you have more room to explore the world and to see what it is well, I think it's kind of notable looking on the big shows that you've been a part of that they are shows that have all ended really well. I mean, Friday Night Lights ended yeah. well three different times. Yeah, the, and, the
0: Parenthood finale is still. Yeah, one of and my Yeah, rates. and
1: yeah. Bates Motel yeah. ended well. As yeah. do you feel like you have sort of a different kind of sense than maybe some other people in town do of, of what a satisfying ending looks or feels like?
2: Well, I mean, I guess based on those three shows, I'm like I I guess I'm not bad at it. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I think it's a tall order to write to an end, but it also is kind of the, it's kind of, (laughs) for lack of a better term, it's the orgasm of the writer. It's the, it's where it all ends. It's where it all makes sense and where it all fits together and has a point, an overall point, you know? So I think it's really important. I think it's a gift to have an end that you get to write to.
0: I do want to go back to one thing that you said. Obviously, you compared this process to being shot out of a cannon, and that you didn't necessarily have the time to research as much as you would like. When, yeah. How did you prepare to tell to explore I this world? I read Brian's book, right,
2: which was actually an amazing education. And I had Brian, and um, I had a great research assistant Twister who worked on the show last year. I had Brian Stelter, and he's he lives in this world. So you know, if you have that access and you you know, well, I want I'm trying to do a story that does this. What would the reality of that meeting be? What would the situa- What would the political situation be? Where what restaurant would they be in? It was it was kind of perfect. Did you get to shadow or
0: go to, to any of the sets of, the, of some of these morning shows?
2: Uh, yeah, but not you know, this wasn't
1: a ton of, of time because I had to hit the ground running with the scripts. Well, I'm kind of curious of what you see as being in 2019 distinctive about the morning show format, like why this show had to exist in this kind of world rather than primetime, rather than a CNN newsroom, rather than a sports newsroom. Why is a morning show...
2: Distinct. Do you mean why did why did he set the show? Why did why did Michael first have the what? idea that this book would be a good setting for a show? I, I know why Michael did, but yeah. I'm,
1: I'm curious why what you gravitated towards and what you were able to latch onto as why this world was distinctive from the other behind the scenes TV it, well, stories. It was Brian's book.
2: It was Brian's book, which described a world that was ex- very high stakes. Which I didn't I didn't realize how much revenue the morning shows contributed to. Now I had no idea, so that was fascinating to me. And combined with the, the really immature, almost high school politics of, you know, the talent and the producers and the, and, the, and the, it was really like the ridiculous politics combined with the super high stakes that was tonally really interesting to me and seemed like a great
0: stage to tell stories. In a larger sense, you know, we always like to ask our showrunners who come in some questions about the state of the industry. You signed Apple's first overall deal, and that landscape has really exploded. And the demand for experienced and proven showrunners remains just unparalleled with what we've seen in the industry. Yeah. What do you think of of the competition and these nine-figure deals that that showrunners are signing? I mean, a lot of them are because they're turning their companies into mini studios with multiple projects in the works. Yes.
2: I mean, I understand having done the job i understand the value of a good showrunner it's it's the difference between success and failure so and i think because there is such a there are so many projects and there's not enough people to run them i get it it's
0: it's supply and demand
2: you but know is
0: doing more than morning show on for apple on your radar
2: i would love to develop yeah it's just this has been a a, a complete full-time you know gig
1: <laughs> well when you had your first chance to show run how well did you feel like you were prepared for that moment was it was it the well, right amount of preparation at that time or no too early, too i mean late? i was i didn't know i had no idea what i was doing i was working with i
2: mean carlton but i was with carlton cues so i you know i didn't i wasn't worried that i was gonna fuck up i just i just was there really the whole first season to contribute and to learn and he Is such a good um, partner and teacher, and I did learn
0: a lot from him. We always like to end these interviews with the same question. So much out there right now in terms of originals, 500 plus. What are you watching right now?
2: Uh, I just watched Fleabag, which I think is brilliant. I know that's not, um, I know everybody watched Fleabag, so that's not a super exciting answer. Uh, But it's fucking brilliant. I mean, it's special. It's unique. She's something. I've sampled a lot of things. I've watched the beginning of Succession, which I thought was great. I work a lot and I have kids, so I don't I don't really get a lot of uh, binge time, you know?
1: Do you gravitate towards things as escape? Do you gravitate th- towards things of scouting out other talent and seeing what's happening? What What kind of draws your attention at this point?
2: I'm interested in artists that are unique and have really special tone to their work, you know? I think that is the thing that excites me the most, that will get me to, like, Tune into
0: something and hang on to it. Well, our guest this week has been Carrie Aaron, the showrunner from Apple's The Morning Show. Carrie, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Good to see you guys.
1: Number five.
0: As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. This week's new arrivals include Amazon's Jack Ryan, season two of The End of the Effing World at Netflix, HBO's His Dark Materials, ABC's Little Mermaid Live, and the arrival, of course, of Apple TV Plus, which launches with four scripted series C, Dickinson, For All Mankind, and The Morning Show. Dan, what you got? Busy week.
1: Well, let's uh, dispatch with. A lot of the stuff off the top, Uh, End of the Effing World has an embargo of next week, so I can't talk about it. But the first season, if you haven't watched it, was a true pleasure on Netflix, and it's really worth checking out. Uh, Jack Ryan, I have not checked in on, and Little Mermaid Live is going to be live, so (laughs) I can't review it. Uh, His Dark Materials, my review should be up on The Hollywood Reporter now. It is much, much better then the Golden Compass movie that was attempted to be made from the Philip Pullman literary series. I think it still is missing a lot of the depth that fans of the books appreciate, but it has a very good cast led by Daphne Keene, who goes and shows that Wolverine was not a fluke. She is a very talented young actor. Other stars include Lin-Manuel Miranda and Ruth Wilson and James McAvoy, etc. It's definitely interesting and occasionally worth watching. Probably it could be better. Maybe it will improve, but... The big thing this week, the Apple Plus shows.
0: Let's start with Jason Momoa's C.
1: Jason Momoa's C, which comes from Stephen Knight, is the story of a post-apocalyptic society in which all of humanity either died or lost their eyesight. But wouldn't you know it, there's a prophet out there who maybe can see. What does it mean for humanity? Uh, it is a show that sometimes has a lot of very Interesting concepts within that high-concept premise. Uh, Sometimes they work very well. Other times they're head-scratchingly inconsistent. It is a beautiful-looking show. Uh, Much has been made of the price tag of all of these shows. I would say that I was more frustrated by the things that didn't make sense and by the lack of actual interesting characterizations and performances. Jason Momoa is a great physical actor. I don't know necessarily that he's able to carry some of the nuance that he's asked to here. I have no idea what Alfre Woodard is even doing in this show. She is so wildly overqualified for the nothing role that she has here, but, you know folks got bills to pay. There were things that kept me interested in each episode. But I would say bottom line, my interest was flagging by the end of the three that I've seen. And I may not continue with this one. It's it the episodes are too long and too bloated and too ill focused for me to really feel all that confident. But some people will find the cool things and latch on to the cool things. And I'm not saying those people are wrong. They're just not necessarily me.
0: Uh, What about Dickinson? This is the Emily Dickinson half hour comedy starring Haley Steinfeld.
1: Dickinson is appealing and it has an interesting conceit because it kind of takes the idea that Emily Dickinson was a modern woman in a 19th century world. And so they make that very, very literal by having her basically speak in Modern slang and being with modern music, with modern music and with random cameos like Wiz Khalifa as Death and John Mulaney as Henry David Thoreau. Apparently, though, I have yet to see that. I think that Haley Steinfeld is extremely appealing here. I think that a lot of the cast is likable and good. Uh, Toby Huss, I always love Toby Huss and things. Um, I think Ella Hunt, who plays kind of to some degree Emily Dickinson's love interest, I think she's promising. But then there are a lot of things where the tone just doesn't come together. I don't think it's consistently applied who is modern and who is not within this world. Uh, You basically have Jane Krakowski playing a Jenna Maroney performance, only it's not within the world of 30 Rock. So you keep going, boy, are you doing this seriously? I don't get it. There are a lot of this is another one, a lot of great ideas here. And I did chuckle occasionally and I thought Haley Steinfeld was watchable consistently and throughout. This is, I would say, the most instantly likable and embraceable of the four Apple shows. I don't know it's necessarily the best and it is not in any way consistent, but none of them are. And so you just have to make peace with that. Also, at a half hour piece, I really appreciate that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, up third, Ron Moore's space drama for all mankind.
1: Speaking of a show that badly was in need of just a little trimming, a little focusing, a little belt tightening, whatever it was, it's a reimagined alt history of the space program and what would have happened if the Russians got to the moon first of the episodes I've seen, each one could have been trimmed, refocused by 5 to 10 minutes to move faster, to move better, to hit its points harder. And I think it could have, God forbid, actually become a great show. As it stands, it's a so-so show. It's a it's a watchable show. If this is a world that you're interested in, and if you like this kind of alt history, you'll probably be interested in it. But so many of the more straightforward histories that this period has been covered in, whether it's the right stuff or from Earth to the Moon, have done it significantly better. And so it's it's hard to find the one great idea here to latch onto and to hold on to through the parts that are bumpy. This could become a really good show. It's not there through the episodes I've seen.
0: Will Battlestar Galactica fans like this?
1: I don't think it's necessarily going to hook them if you like the sci-fi trappings of it, but Ron Moore finds a way to do smart period type stuff, whether it's Outlander or, or this. And so he's, he's a good, smart writer. I, I feel like probably in the development process, there were things that could have been tightened and tweaked and steered that for whatever reason, simply were not, or, you know, weren't able to come together fully. Maybe, you know, all of these shows have been renewed. So maybe by season two, this will become the show it could be.
0: Yeah. And we should note the official renewals will probably come next week. But yeah, they've all been renewed. Um, And wrapping up Apple's big marquee show, we've talked extensively about it with Carrie Aaron, but the morning show.
1: It's another one where you're watching the bumps in the road and in a perfect world, you just wouldn't need to see those things. So... The first episode here is just a total mess. It doesn't know what the show is supposed to be. The characters don't come together. Their motivations don't come together.
0: There's a lot of iPhones in it.
1: (laughs) That didn't even bother me, because let's be real. If you walk through our newsroom right now, you'd see two thirds of us sitting on our iPhones, too. And we are not sponsored by Apple. It's just you can't fully believe it. It feels like a lesser version of things. It also feels like a lesser version of reality, because they've made the Steve Carell character I would say, very, very, very close to Matt Lauer, so much so that people will think it's him, whether or not it is or not. Yeah. And and
0: you've obviously heard from Carrie Aaron
1: about that. So. Exactly. This is all discussed. The The second episode begins to take the show to an interesting place. And then the third episode, I kind of liked the third episode. You can actually is the first one where I actually sat back and said, OK, I'm watching Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston playing on my TV. And they're having fun and I'm liking watching them. That And that's all this show needs to be, honestly, for me, is is those two getting meaty monologues and being the stars that they really are. And you start seeing that in the third episode after having not seen it. Previously, there's a there's a fantastic supporting cast, and a lot of them are very good. I think Billy credup is is tremendous here. He's he's just the perfect embodiment of every slimy network executive ever. And I think he's playing it for funny. I think he's playing it for serious. I think he could turn out to be the series hero or the series villain. And I don't know. And I like that a lot you you basically wander through the newsroom and everybody is somebody from another TV show. You know, ooh, Gugu and rash she could be the star of this show. Why are we barely spending any time with her? Belle Powley, she's been great in a couple movies. I could watch a whole show starring her, but, but she's gone. There's a lot of that. And you're just, you're watching the bumpiness. And I'm not going to say that the bumpiness doesn't, exist. But by episode three, there really is a show that I will keep watching. This is not like C where I just, you know, there's just not enough for me to latch on to. I will keep watching Morning Show. I hope that it continues the improvement and focus of the third episode and ceases to be as inconsistent as the first two were.
0: Yeah. So of the four, which will you watch more of?
1: i will definitely watch more of morning show i will definitely watch more of dickinson though probably not rushing i will take my time making it through for all mankind and if someone wants to tell me that by episode seven or eight of c awesome things start happening and it becomes fantastic i I could check back in on it but i I am not that one is way down
0: the list well that feels like a good place to wrap things up thank you for listening to tv's top five the hollywood reporters tv podcast be sure to look out starting november 6th for hollywood remixed the newest podcast from the hollywood reporter hosted by rebecca ford and rebecca sun in which each episode explores a type of story or character that has traditionally been underrepresented or misrepresented in hollywood the series launches november 6th featuring an interview with last christmas star henry golding
1: The Rebecca's are fantastic at what they do, and they have lined up a really impressive list of guests for their first season. So I look forward to listening to those myself. If you like TV's top five, on the other hand, you can subscribe on any of your normal podcasting platforms. If you like us, please rate us. If you really like us, write a review. It helps spread the word of mouth. Come say hi to us on the Twitter. We're always happy to hear from people with questions, comments and concerns. But if you have good questions, like the kind of questions you want us to answer in an upcoming mailbag, email us at TV's top five. That's the number five at thr.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until next week, Leslie.
0: Until next week, Dan.